First and Second Peter. We're in Second Peter now, and in chapter two, we introduced this chapter last night, uh, last week. This entire chapter deals with uh, false teachers, false prophets, false teachers. Uh, a lot of the Bible. You remember we read a, lo- a long passage from Jeremiah last week. A lot of passage about the false shepherds, the false preachers that didn't guard God's people and just. Uh, left them to the wolves and so forth, and that God was going to deal with them and judge them. And so there's a lot of speaking in the Bible about false prophets, false prophecies, false doctrine, false teachers. That's why uh, we're stressed uh, over and over again throughout the Word of God to cling to sound doctrine, to hold to sound doctrine, to study to show yourself approved unto God, that we would know the Lord. The Lord has spoken to us by His Word. And... Uh, there were false prophets, and we we can read this. Pick up in your Bibles, second chapter, second Peter chapter two, verse two. I mean, chapter two, verse one. This is first two verses are review. But there were false prophets among the people. Peter says, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately or secretly shall bring in damnable heresies. That means they're destructive heresies. Remember, heresy is not just a doctrine per se. It's a division. It's a sect. It's almost like a political party within a within a bigger organization to bring division. Uh, Damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. That would be the final uh, outcome, I guess you would say. Where do they end up? Well, it's a little false doctrine. It's a little off. It's a little out of balance. We're, if, not, if it's not repented of or not checked up, so to speak, and let's put a stop to this and correct it and rebuked and repented of, and it carries out to its natural course, or unnatural course, I guess you would say, it's going to bring the person to the place, the teacher of this, that espouses this, uh, that they will even deny the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift, swift destruction. And, may, and many shall follow their pernicious, it says in King James, that means lustful ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they, with feigned words, make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Now we read those verses last week. I'm going to just hit that real quickly and then move on. It's the whole chapter, as I said, dedicated to this. And primarily we see not so much here the false doctrine, but the false, the one who's speaking it. This is who Peter's dealing with. The one who's speaking it, the person who's preaching a false doctrine, the false teacher. And so, again, this is found uh, many times in the Scriptures. You start looking at it, you see it. And, uh, and I thank the Lord for it. It's important to the Lord. He warns us of that. Uh, Paul said in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, remember the last time he was gathered together with those pastors in Asia and around Ephesus and all that area, after three missionary journeys, the last time he was going to see them or be with them, he warned them. He says, I've warned you for three years, day and night. After my departure, they're going to come in wolves in sheep's clothing, not sparing the flock. And he's talking about these types of people. Okay? Even among, from your own selves, they will arise. Well, that's where they come from. They come from within. That's what makes them dangerous. That's what makes them effective. They come from within. And so in Moses' day, for example, uh, he had Dathan and Abiram and uh, Korah that opposed him. And that's a well-counted story in Numbers. It talks about the destruction that God brought upon, upon them. It's nothing new, okay? Nothing new at all. This type of thing has been going on. But I want to hit this just real quickly about those three verses before, which we covered last week before we move on. They're going to bring in heresies privately, secretly. That's what that means. It is never customary, I'm reading from an author here, for teachers of error, and we talked about this last week, to declare and oppose truth openly in the beginning. If you were going to do it, wouldn't you, you know, if you were going to bring something in new that was false and you wanted to bewitch the people and you wanted to trick the people, you wouldn't just come in openly and everything you've ever been taught is false, you know. 
it says that, that what you see, the teachers are going are to come in in the beginning as a rule. They work in an underhanded way, seeking to gain the confidence of God's people before they make known their real views. Such false teachers often hide their doctrinal peculiarities by using orthodox terms, which, however, they attach an altogether different meaning to. Remember we talked about that? They're using words like salvation, but to this church or this minister or this false teacher, salvation means something totally different. The rapture means something totally different. They'll use it because, because we're used to hearing it and we feel comfortable with it. But they don't mean a catching away. They mean a spiritual, you know, for the rapture, for example. They don't mean a catching away, literally, of God's people being removed from the earth all at once. They mean it's more like a, uh, we, we move to a higher plane spiritually or something like that. So they use that at first because it makes people comfortable. and But they have different meanings to the words. And so... After a while, once they feel like they've gained the confidence, then they can start introducing, uh, I guess you would say, more blatant or plain or clear, you know, things that are off and, and that are, are wrong doctrinally. So we need to watch that. And, and that's what Peter's saying here. He says that they're going to bring in these things privily. And when it says in, ver- in the end of verse 3, it says, whose judgment, whose judgment, the judgment of these false prophets it says of a, now, of a long time lingereth not and their damnation slumbereth not. So what is he saying? He's saying it's, it, their, their judgment is coming. It, there, it's not, it might seem like somebody's going on. Have you thought that before? I've seen false teachers and prophets in our day, famous ones that preach in big arenas and all over the place. And we see them and we say, why does the Lord not strike them down with the lightning bolt? You know what I mean? That is heresy. That is false doctrine. I don't understand it. But the, but the Bible, God is patient. All right. He doesn't do things on our time schedule. And so but we one thing we can glean from God's word for sure is that their judgment is coming. OK, it's not lingering. It's not slumbering. God's not sleeping on the job. Their judgment, they're not going to get away with it. And so God's going to deal with it. So what we have here, y'all, uh, in the new new scriptures that we're going to cover, uh, specifically, is going to be three examples from the Old Testament of this. Okay, three examples about about what not a false doctrine, so to speak, but of God's judgment on sinful people that persist in their sin. Every one of us is a sinner that's been saved by grace. So don't get me wrong, anybody, including a false teacher, a false prophet, can repent and be totally restored with the Lord. Amen. We know that, all right? But I'm, what's, here, what's going to be listed here is a judgment on those that did not repent. They persisted all the way through, stubbornly, hard-headedly, defiantly of God, and pressed on with their own agenda, and, and their, their judgment came. So we're going to look at these examples in just a minute, but I want us to see there's quite a difference between the real prophets of God that were mentioned at the end of chapter 1. It says that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Okay? They weren't trying to make merchandise of people. They, they were holy men of God. We talked about already before they were called. And they spoke as the Holy Spirit moved their lives. Or like we said, that, that moving is like uh, a wind filling up the, uh, the sail of a sailboat or a ship. And it carries them along. That's how the, the, old, the Bible was written by holy men of God. And they weren't looking to make merchandise of anybody. Paul said, I could wish myself a curse from Christ for my brethren, the Jews in the flesh. What a difference. I mean, he said I could. We know we can't really do that. But that showed his burden for his Jewish brothers who had rejected Christ, his longing for them to be saved. What a difference between somebody's trying to make merchandise of you. Total difference, right? We see that in Jesus' life. We see it in in Stephen's life saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He kept preaching the truth. It wasn't gaining. It wasn't any advantage to him in the natural. They were stoning him. And he kept preaching the truth to them. And so there's a serious difference between uh, the true prophets of God and these false ones. But let's look at the three examples. And I'm going to read them and we'll go back and talk about them. Verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, 
but cast them down the hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. That's our third example. So the angels, we see Noah's day, the world that was, and Sodom and Gomorrah condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly and deliver just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Okay, the three examples here are these angels that were created and in the presence of God that sinned. It's, it's almost, you know, almost universally believed that's the angels that, that, that fell when Satan was cast out of heaven. A third of the angels that he drew with his tail. Uh, they were caught up in his, his pride and looked to him and his beauty and right there in the presence of God. And we see the judgment that came upon them, the, the world that was in Noah's day, these are the three judgments. And then in Lot's day, you could say that was an example of the flesh being judged because of the sin and corruption that was going on. But um, it says that these angels, God spared not, verse 4, the angels that sinned. Why does he go to this length in these six verses here? Because he's talking about these false prophets. Their judgment is coming. If God didn't spare these three that He mentioned, that we're looking at, He's not going to spare some false prophet because they think that God's going to spare them. Or they think that God, they're, they're getting away with it. Or something like, something like that. So let's look in our Bibles. Just, uh, keep your spot marked there and turn to Jude. And let's read verses 6 and 7. As I said before, the Jude, the... the Book of Jude is almost uh, portions of it, like verses four through nineteen or something like that, are almost word for word with Second Peter chapter two. Almost, he's dealing with the same thing. And remember, this is what Peter's writing is the last thing that he wrote before he went to be with the Lord. He knew he was about to die. It's important. He's not wasting time. But Jude verses six and seven. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under destruction unto the day of judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities round about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire." Uh, you don't hear things like this talked about a lot. You might say, what's the relevance? What's the importance of it? Well, we're studying through the Bible, and the Bible tells us this, okay? Some reason the Lord wants us to know it, all right? And uh, so he's dealing with it here. But when it says, you can turn back to Second uh, Peter, when it says that uh, these, these angels that sinned in verse 4 were cast down into hell, that word for hell there is Tartarus, and it's the only time it's used in the Bible. And it's uh, speaking about uh, this lower part of hell. And it's like they're reserved there. And they're going to be called up at some future day. Maybe the great, great white throne judgment. And these angels are going to be judged and given their final sentencing. It's just God's way. It's, it's just what he's, he's saying. They're reserved in this place of torture for a future judgment that's coming. They're already under judgment. But they're going to appear before the Lord. Uh, like lost men will at the great white throne judgment and, and receive their final suffering. God is very long-suffering, very patient, much more patient than you are or than, than I am, praise God. But the judgment on sin will come if not repented of. So let's, let's move on and look at uh, verse 5 about in Noah's day. And, and Noah and spared not the old world. You know, there's three worlds. There's a world that was. There's a world that is right now. And there's a world that's coming. There's been three worlds, so to speak. The world that was before the flood. That world was destroyed. Okay? There's a world that is now. 
and there's a world that's coming, a new heaven and a new earth. And so uh, God judged that world that was. People lived in that day and age as though God did not exist. They came to a point where uh, they just indulged in everything, a lot like in Sodom and Gomorrah as well. But let's look at this. I want you to to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. If you have not spent time studying through the book of Genesis and said, well, that's Old Testament. It doesn't apply to me. You're wrong. You're missing out. It does apply to us. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for the man of God. And so, uh, but let's look at this here. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination... Listen, every, this, is, this is the characteristic, alright, of the planet, of humanity on the planet. That their wickedness was great. Well, you can say, well, that's how it is now. Let's go on. It says, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart, man's heart, was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord. He doesn't repent of sin, but he can't change his mind on, on things. Okay? That's what he's talking about here. He changed his... Uh, <coughs> he repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Amen. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And so that it goes on to say the earth was corrupt before the Lord. He explains it a little deeper. But you see quite a contrast between the world and then Noah. Noah, the eighth person, who was a just man, who was a preacher of righteousness. That's where in the New Testament we're told that he was a preacher of righteousness. One preacher said every nail or every spike that he drove into the ark was a sermon testifying of God's coming judgment upon sin. I'm sure he preached as well, you know, but uh, God, God had mercy upon him. He walked uprightly before the Lord like Enoch. Enoch had, had this testimony before he died. Enoch walked with the Lord. He pleased God. That's all we know about Enoch. God translated and took him home. Had a testimony that he pleased God and he walked with God. We don't know much about Noah growing up or anything like that. But we know that he was a just man. He walked with God. He was perfect in his generations. And he feared God. And the Lord said, You have I seen righteous before me in this generation. And so he tells him to prepare an ark. And so this, he begins to, uh, to build the ark and for uh, 120 years in building the ark. People lived a lot longer in those days. About 120 years in building the ark. And, uh, and he was spared, okay? He was spared, but the world was not spared. Every living creature died that was upon the face of the earth. And it's sobering to say the least. It sounds like a fairy tale. Sounds like it's it's made up. The Christians would just make that up to make people afraid or something like that. The Word of God gives us that. It's foundational to what we believe. And then this epistle of Second Peter, you can turn back here. Second Peter is going to end next chapter talking about that. In the last days, scoffers are going to come and say, where's the promise of His coming? All things have continued like they've always been. There's never been a judgment of God. And he's saying there hasn't been a serious judgment of God. We're looking at three of them right here, but specifically the whole world being destroyed by a flood and with a flood. And then we're going to spend a little more time on this last one in verse 6, 2 Peter 2 6, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. Homosexuality uh, was rampant uh, when the angels went to deliver Lot and his family out of Sodom. The, uh, the men of the city pressed around the house and said, Lot, bring him, banging on the door. I mean, it's demonic. Banging on the door, bring him out. We want to have this sexual, homosexual relationship with him. It doesn't matter if man condones it. God hates it. 
He hates every sin, but he hates it. And uh, God doesn't see it as a sickness or you're born this way any more than a man's born in sin. Okay, uh, he does. It's not condoned. It's it's uh, God hates it and he's going to judge it. And that specifically was given as an example. Sodom and Gomorrah was the destruction of those cities was given as an example that all, all who afterwards should live ungodly. So you can have pastors saying it's okay. You can have pastors ordaining homosexuals into the ministry, which we do. You can have pastors performing uh, homosexual weddings between two people. You can celebrate it. You can have the parades. You can have the marches. You can have the TV shows and the movies and the books and the, the Christian services, just like we're having here with... Uh, appealing to homosexuals to make them feel comfortable and so forth. And it can get bigger and bigger and bigger to where the only few people on the planet that don't agree with it. And it doesn't matter. Okay? It doesn't matter. God's not concerned about what's popular. He's not concerned about, uh, oh, the tide's swinging this way. What am I going to do? You know, He knows what He's going to do. He knows what He believes. He knows how to deal with these things. And so he's not going to change his mind and say, okay, okay, it's all right. Wink at it and let it slide by. He's not going to do it any more than he would for murder or adultery or fornication or, you know, the other sins that are, that are mentioned in the Bible, idolatry. It's a sin. And it doesn't matter. There are churches in our town. I was telling you, I was reading in, in the paper just a couple of weeks ago, uh, in that eat, play, and pray, and live section, or eat, play, and live section of the paper, and it was talking about uh, they were going to have uh, a church. One of the churches here in town was hosting uh, a, a, an event where it was appealing to children. It was specifically geared for parents to bring their children. It's called family oriented, where they were going to have men in drag, you know, just men dressed up in ladies' clothing read bedtime stories to them here in Baton Rouge, okay? And one of the churches here in town was going to fix the refreshments for everybody. This is, this is here. This is where we are right now. To make people more comfortable and these children growing up from this age up comfortable around that type of sin. God doesn't hate the people, but He hates that sin. And we can't call it right when God calls it wrong. He tells us, David says, I hate what, you know, we're to hate what God hates and love what He loves. If I'm identifying with my Savior, then I need to be like my Savior and like-minded. Or act somehow that I'm more kind than Jesus or more merciful than Jesus. We've talked about it before. I'm not. What the kindness of the Lord would do is by the power of the Gospel and by the power of the blood of Jesus, bring them out of that. And he's doing it today. and People are coming out. But the point is, this is a, a serious thing. It's not a question of popularity or acceptance. It's a question of, thus saith the Lord. Everything comes down to that. Remember that. I know you know that. But keep that compass. You know, you're about the moral compass. Keep that standard in your heart and your life. The Word of God. Thus saith the Lord, the Holy Spirit, Amen. keeping me straight when the whole world is crooked. And guess what? I used to be crooked and out of off and slanted and in my sin and going off the wrong way as well. And the Lord straightened me out and set my feet upon a rock. And He has established our goings, put a new song in our mouth, even praises to God. Many are going to see it and be glad. And so... Um, I want you to read this with me in Romans chapter 1. Keep your spot there. Don't be intimidated by TV shows or rainbows or, you know, marches or protests or the, 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 the jokes and the cynicism and all that. Um, I know whom I believe, Paul said. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep all that I've committed unto him against that day. And so I'm going to believe God and I'm going to stay with Him. That's where I'm going to live and where I'm going to die. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Because that when they knew God, 
So they had this knowledge of the Lord. They had some type of knowledge. They weren't just totally blind and in their sin. They, they knew God was God. They knew He was holy. They knew they were accountable to Him. How far you want to go with that, I don't know. But they, they knew God. When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God. They can't really change it. They're not really changing the glory of God and their estimation of God and their thoughts of God and their fear of God and their accountability to God. Um, they changed the, the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man. And the birds and the four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore? So this is a direct result of that rejection of the truth when they knew the truth. There's a lot of people that just don't know the truth and you can bring the gospel to them and they get saved. This is not... These are people that were, knew the truth and yet when they knew the truth, they totally rejected that and wanted nothing to do with it. They thought they were in control, but God turned them over. They didn't know that even in their lost state, God was sparing them from something. But they rejected that truth. And then in their lost state, God turned them over. And here's what He turned them over to. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the carnal use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Man with man working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat or fit. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. And don't you see it now? People want to put God out of their minds. That's why they want to get rid of prayer in school. That's why they want to get rid of any context about our Christian heritage in our country. Out of the textbooks. They don't want it even mentioned. That's why it's Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas. We laugh about that. Oh, it's nothing. No big deal. But they don't want God in their face in their knowledge. They don't want to be remember, remembering of Him. They don't want to be reminded of Him. They don't want anything to do. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them, this is the third time we're reading this passage, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murders, debate, deceit, malignity, and so forth. And we're just going to stop there. But uh, again, it doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what man thinks. Amen. You know, it's kind of like the Lord said to Job, where were you when I hung the morning stars or spread the earth out? You, you put, look, gird up your loins and I'm going to talk to you, Joe, and tell you what's going on. You're asking all these questions and acting like you know everything. And he was a God-fearing man, okay? Job was a righteous and a godly man. But the point is, God's not asking our opinion. We need to seek for truth like for fine hidden treasures like gold. And if we'll find it, it's going to be wisdom and strength and health to our bones. And God's going to lead us in the way that we should go. And so, uh, this, this about... The, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is to be an example. All those thousands of years ago, what does that have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. It served as an example. And people say, I don't like that hell and fire and brimstone preaching. It. I don't like that. And felt like you were preaching at me and all this kind of stuff. It's, it, well, it is God preaching at us. You can, you can shut me up if you want to or shut this pastor up or that pastor or whoever. The truth is still the truth. The, the truth is still sounding out. You ought to be glad to hear it. Because God loves you enough to give it to you. Because He loves you enough to save you from your sin. And bring you out of your error. And so forth. But that's the days in which we're living. Uh, it's not new. 
but it is more prevalent. Would you say, without a doubt, as we get closer to the return of the Lord? We've seen it change in our lives and uh, greatly in our lives. And when I mention that about the church in Baton Rouge, it just blows my mind. And, but, but it doesn't blow my mind. Uh, let's turn back to 2 Peter. And I want us to look at Lot. The Bible calls him in more than one place. I think the Lord called him just or righteous. And here Peter calls him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a just man. Just means innocent or holy. Okay? And here we see in verse 7 and 8, and deliver the Lord rained down judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, at the same time delivered just Lot. It doesn't mean only Lot. Just here means just or righteous. Okay? <coughs> delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man, here it calls him righteous, dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day, with their unlawful deeds. Now we're really getting into something. Okay? This is speaking to me as a believer. It does not say he was lost. It doesn't say he was a pretend Christian. I know they're Old Testament saints, but you understand my point. He's called rust, just and righteous and uh, three times. He's called that. And so uh, here he is and he's living among them. And you've heard the scripture before that uh, don't be deceived. Evil uh, communications corrupt good manners. You know that scripture? Okay. You know what it means? It means just what it says. Lot didn't go in there and turn Sodom and Gomorrah upside down for Jesus or for Jehovah. He went in there for a wrong motive, for a carnal motive. We read about him, and there's a pretty good bit in the scripture as Abraham's nephew that Abraham basically raised as a son and he was just and he was righteous. And as their families and herds and cattle and all grew to where they couldn't really dwell in the same place, rather than being a fight between the family, they said, no, we're just getting too big. God's blessing is too much. Let's spread out a little bit and get some elbow room here. You pick where you want to go. Lot, I'll give you a first choice. Because Abraham having faith in God knew he was going to ultimately get what God had for him. God had already made a covenant with him and a promise to him. He didn't have to quibble or quarrel or fight for what was his with his nephew. Okay? Because he was already going to get what God had for him. But Lot says he looks towards Sodom and Gomorrah and the plain or the valley or the, the smooth ground, I guess, before you got to the city was a place that was well watered and it was perfect for raising cattle. That was the only determination him choosing that place. <clears throat> not he didn't pray about it, seek God about it. Where do you want me to go? Not that he wasn't righteous. He did believe in Jehovah. He wasn't worshiping idols. He didn't commit the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. He wasn't doing that. Okay, but his only prerequisite, you know, a consideration was, hey, that looks perfect for cattle. We have to be careful of that as well, right? That, this speaks to me a lot. And just making decisions based on what's carnal, carnally uh, reasonable. And that's what he did. And so we read about him. He pitched his tent, it says, towards Sodom. So he's out in the plains, but not in the city. Then we read about him later, and he's got a house with a door that locks inside the gates of the city. And he's in Sodom. He moved, right? My, we're this close and got some friends here. And I do a lot of trading and business over there. And just be more convenient and everything. So I'll just move on in the city. And, and that's where we find him. And so the Bible tells us that when, when God went to, to deliver Lot, Lot was lingering. You know, you read the story. It's a wonderful study sometimes. I'm kind of getting into it a little bit, not completely. Abraham interceded for his nephew. That's how he got delivered in the first place. Okay? God considered Abraham his friend and should I hide this thing from my friend Abraham? I know he's going to walk with me and raise his children to walk with me. I'm going to tell him what I'm about to do. Guess what? I believe God wanted him to intercede and wanted him to deliver Lot out of that place. Now if Lot had died there, and I'm just theorizing, okay, doesn't mean that he would have gone to hell. If he was righteous and just, 
He was a God-fearing man, but God spared him and got him out of there. Okay? And so when Lot, when the angels go and said, up, get out of this place, God's about to rain down fire and brimstone and destroy this place. What do you have here? Get them all and let's, we got to get out. We can't destroy it until you're out of here. And he says, well, I got my three son-in-laws. I think basically they were engaged to the daughters. I don't know if they were technically married yet, but it's as good as marriage practically in that culture. And so he goes and tells his son-in-laws, we got to get out of here. God's going to judge this place for the horrible sin. We got to get out now. And the Bible said basically that Lot's son-in-laws laughed at him. Now, can you imagine? Here's a grown man you know, successful and everything like that. He's got a word from angels that really came to him. He loves his son-in-laws. He wants to get them out of there. He goes to them to deliver them from that place. And they laughed at him. They said he seemed, Lot seemed to his sons-in-laws as one who mocked or was telling a joke. And I believe for one reason and for one reason only. I think if Abraham had told them that, they wouldn't have laughed. They might not have come they might have just been defiant and rebellious. But I don't think they would have laughed at Abraham. I don't think they would have laughed at Abram or Noah or, or, you know what I'm saying, Enoch or one of these people like that. They laughed at Lot, I believe, and didn't take him seriously because he didn't have the testimony of showing Jehovah and, and his fear of God like Job did. One who feared God and shunned evil and prayed to God always. You understand what I'm saying? He was living right amongst them. Obviously, he didn't do the sins that they committed in that city, the horrible vileness. He kept himself from that. But he was very comfortable with it. He was very comfortable with it. And so when he tries to give a testimony or witness to somebody, basically, to deliver them from the judgment of God, no power no effectiveness. We need to remember that. And I've shared that about my own testimony when I was at LSU for about five years. I could not have delivered anybody. You know what I mean by delivering. God delivers them. But through my life, my testimony, saying, can I tell you about Jesus? While I'm sitting there the night before at the same parties that they're at. You understand what I'm saying? It just doesn't work that way. And so uh, we know the story. God delivered Lot, but he lost everything. The son-in-laws didn't come. His wife looked back, was turned into a pillar of salt. So he loses his wife, his home, his children, his cattle, everything that he had there. And God got him out because God knows how to deliver the godly, he says. But that word vex is an interesting word. It says that that righteous man was vexed, in verse 7, with the filthy conversation or the lifestyle of the wicked. It says it again. His righteous soul was vexed two times in two verses. It means, it means to wear down, to oppress, to exhaust, to tire out. Again, we don't lift up, not in that way, do we lift up the sinfulness around us, the cesspool around us. Uh, we're brought down. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And so uh, it also means, uh, that word vex means to torture, to torment, or pain. So his soul, the Bible says in verse 7 and 8, dwelling among them, that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And y'all, there's some points, and we know this, there are some parts and arenas or areas of your life where you have to be around ungodly people. It's not your choice. You're walking down a crowded street of people and you hear cursing as they go by. You're walking through a, a grocery store and there's two, you know, uh, homosexuals holding hands or whatever, doing something over here. You know, we can't, we can't control that. We'd have to live as hermits up on a mountaintop all by ourselves to never be around that. Uh, maybe people you work with where you don't have a choice if, if God's placed you there. He may want to move you out if you pray and seek Him. But the point is there are people in school and so forth. We understand that. We can't control their sinful behavior. 
but we can where it comes to our choices. Can you decide what you watch on TV? Yes. Can you decide the music that you listen to? Can you decide the reading material that you read? Can you decide when it's your time and you're not on the clock or whatever, can, where you go? Where you take those two little feet of yours or your car and go? Can you decide who you hang out with? Yes, you can. And this was a choice that Lot made to live there. God got him out. But it was his choice to live there. And in so doing, it vexed or tormented or exhausted or wore out his own soul. He was vexed by it. I just picture somebody constantly, you know, uh, I don't know, like a little brother that's just a little brat or something, just poking you all the time, poking you, poking you, poking you. There's never any rest. You want to turn around and pop him, you know? It's enough. Um, I just picture his soul being vexed like that. Worn out constantly and seeing and hearing the filth that was all around him day by day. He couldn't go anywhere without hearing it. That was the, that was the characteristic of the city. That was it. It was given over to it. God came down from heaven. He told Abraham to see was it all together like he had heard. Their sin had reached up to heaven. That's a lot of sin. Okay? And he came down to deal with it. And so we need to... Uh, to understand where do I have a choice and where I have a choice, it becomes my responsibility. If you're walking through Winn-Dixie and you hear somebody curse, you don't have to say, God, forgive me. You understand what I mean? You're like, God, help me wash my mind. I don't want to think about that word. That's one thing. But you, that wasn't your choice. In fact, it would have been anything but your choice. But where you do have a choice, then, or I have a choice, I become responsible what I put on that remote control on the TV or look out on my phone or, or whatever. We're responsible for our friends and who we hang out with. That is my choice. We say, well, if I didn't hang out with some of these people, I wouldn't have a friend in the world. You have Jesus. If it's really that bad, you just hang out with Jesus. If it's your downtime or your free time. And pray for God, godly Christian friends and see if God won't give them. He will. He will. Don't use that as an excuse. And say, well, I wouldn't have a friend in the world. I used to think that when I was at LSU and I listened to the devil's lies. You have, boy, you, you live for God. You're not really stand up and take a stand. You won't have a friend in the world. That's a lie. All of y'all are my friends, right? Amen. Okay. Um, so praise the Lord. But it vexed his soul from day to day. Amen. And so he had no power in his testimony or his witness for the Lord. I want to read just a little bit more about this. It's, the Bible does say that he was just and righteous, but it never could be said of Lot like it would of Abraham and Joshua and Sarah and on and on. Uh, he, you don't read about Lot in Hebrews chapter 11, do you? He's not mentioned there. I mean, I'm not either. So, I mean, just, the point is he was just and righteous, but you don't see him mentioned there in Hebrews chapter 11 because... He was called just and righteous, but it could never be said of, of Lot. By faith, Lot dwelt in Sodom. You ever thought about that? By faith, Lot dwelt in Sodom. No, he didn't. That was unbelief. That was carnality. That was worldliness. A worldly attitude. And I just... Uh, it was, he, he was... He hoped to better himself in a worldly sense by living there. This would be a step up for me. Look at the good land down there and all the water. And I got lots of cattle. They're going to multiply like crazy. I'll be very wealthy. We have to take these things into mind. I think it does serve as an example. He was saved, yet so is by fire, literally. I mean, he was grabbed out while the fire was coming down and he got out of there. And even at the end, y'all, when he knew he should get out, he was still lingering, it says. Just kind of hanging around like a deer caught in the headlights. He knew he should get out. Maybe he's looking around at all his stuff and all. I'm giving up everything. I don't know what he was thinking, but I know he was lingering. And it says the angel literally grabbed him by the arm and said, we got to get out of here right now and got him out. That's the kindness of the Lord to do that. But uh, let, let's just keep reading a little bit more. 
And it says that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how. This is a wonderful truth. This is something we ought to highlight in our Bibles. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. He's got it all under control. I scratch my head and wonder sometimes, how is this going to turn out for good? How is God going to help this person who is a godly man? How is He going to do this, that, or the other? Or when is God going to deal with the wicked and, and shut their mouths from all the perverse things that they're speaking? When is He going to deal with them? We just need to know that God's got that under control. I need to trust Him and I need my heart to be right where I can hate the sin and still love the people who are caught up in it or deceived by it, or given over to it, that God would bring them out. Because as long as they're living and breathing, they can be saved. Amen? And so, God is not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. That's His will. So I want to close with just a couple of thoughts here on that last verse. We're going to close with verse 9 tonight. Uh, but He knows how to do it. Okay? He knows how to do it. And so the Lord can... Rescue his people from trials and temptations. That's what it means there. To deliver the godly out of temptations. That means trials. If you're in a trial, uh, Daniel in the lion's den, because of his testimony for Christ, right? Did the Lord know how to deliver him out of that? Yes, he did. Even death. Don't ever forget this. For a believer, someone truly saved, even death is a deliverance. Okay? Delivers us out of a sick body. Delivers us out of the hands of sinful people. Paul was delivered uh, through his martyrdom in Rome. He was delivered to be with the Lord. Okay, So even death is a deliverance. But the Lord knows how to do it. It says, at the same time, reserve the unjust for the day of punishment or judgment. So think about that. You know, you make a reservation at a restaurant, maybe a month ahead. And it's there, 7 o'clock this night. My wife and I are going on a anniversary date or something like this, something big, or at a hotel, and it's waiting for you. Well, the <coughs> Lord has reserved punishment for the unjust, the unrepentant unjust, okay? And He's reserved it for them. So it may go a long, long time. They may outlive, may outlive all of us and persist in their false teachings or heresies or abominations before the Lord. And we think, how is that fair? And so forth. God's got a reservation for them if they don't repent. But the Bible says that for the righteous or the just, God has an inheritance for us. It's an inheritance that's waiting for us. And I, I want to close by looking at uh, a scripture here. Look at back to 1 Peter. We studied this. Chapter 1, read verses 4 and 5. Well, let's pick up to verse 3. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Speaking of believers. To what? So we're, we're, we're saved to something. There's something out there for us. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and fit, that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what the Lord has for us. Amen? That's what He has for us and that's what He's bringing us to. And so, God has it. God permits or allows trials to come into our lives. We've talked about it. But He delivered them out of that. He, it was maybe for our discipline. You know what I mean? For our growth. We're, we're, somebody's, uh, we're in an uncomfortable place. We're around a bunch of believers, at, unbelievers at work and it's hard. And He wants us to, to learn from that and to grow from that and to rejoice in the midst of that. Or sickness to our body. And He says, I want you to rejoice in Me in the midst of that <coughs> sickness. It's not for our destruction. It's for our discipline and for our growth. And so, uh, but God permits the, the wicked to go through things. It's almost like He's letting them enjoy themselves now. They seem to be just getting the best of life. That's what the Asaph the psalmist talked about. He almost 
slipped. He almost fell and stumbled in his walk with God when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He just couldn't take it. He was like, I don't get it, God. I'm afflicting myself basically and keeping myself from indulging in different sins. And I go to the temple and I worship and uh, or the tabernacle and worship and I, I keep your laws and commandments and I fear you. And here's my neighbor over here. And they just live however they want and they curse and they steal and they oppress the poor and they're just getting away with it. And he said it was too hurtful. I couldn't even think about it. It hurt him too much in his mind and his heart to think these wicked are just prospering. He says, until I went into the sanctuary. You know them? He got with God on the matter. And then the Lord showed me their what? End. He says, how foolish I was to be envious of the wicked. I was like a brute beast. God forgive me. He, they're not getting away with it. I'm not jealous of them anymore. They can keep it up for another 50 years, 75 years if they want to. I saw their end. God showed me their end where they're coming. And He shows us our end in Christ in a, to an in, uh, inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for us. So I just want to close with that, y'all. And so we looked at these examples. We're going to move on uh, and, and Peter just continues this whole chapter, more of the characteristics of these false prophets and teachers and uh, what happens to those that follow after him and that sort of thing. Y'all stand with me tonight. We're going to close there because I thought it was good to close with what the Lord has reserved for us, amen, in heaven. So Father, we just come before you tonight in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I thank you that because of Christ, and His blood that's washed us. And only because of Christ and His blood that's washed us, Lord, are we fit for Your heaven. We have an inheritance. And Christ is our brother. And we're joint heirs with Jesus. And that, that future of the ungodly and the false prophets and those like Sodom and Gomorrah, Lord, that's not our future. And I thank You that You know how to, to, to deliver the godly out of temptations and to, to punish the ungodly in the way that you see fit and is fitting. I want to thank you for your grace and mercy to us. I want to thank you for the things that you're teaching us. I want to thank you, Lord, because if it wasn't for you helping us and saving us and causing us by your word, your spirit to think rightly, we would be deceived just like others, God. We would be just like that. We would be indulging in all those things that pleased us and all the lust of the flesh we would be indulging in those things, God. But because You have enlightened us and quickened us and opened our eyes spiritually, we see Jesus and the love and the kindness of the Savior that's brought us to salvation and forgiveness and cleansing and restoration and even called us to a holy walk. And Your Holy Spirit lives inside of us, God. <coughs> we love You tonight, God. Help us not to become bitter against sinful people, God. Help us to pray for them. We don't compromise with them or their sin or their false doctrine. But help us not to become bitter in our own hearts, God. Teach us and help us to forgive and to pray for those in these situations, God. We love You and we thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you. Let's just worship the Lord for a few minutes here tonight.